The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Energy poverty, according to Canadian Urban Sustainability Practitioners, refers to the experience of households or communities that struggle to heat their homes and power their lights and appliances, a reality that is playing itself out in the maritime provinces of Canada, and it has forced the hand of the Prime Minister to offer financial relief. In his blog, The Honest Broker, Roger Pilkey Jr. wrote of the iron law of climate policy, a law that demonstrates that when push comes to shove, governments will wilt under pressure from voters' wallets. It is, Pilkey says, a boundary condition. The theory of using higher-priced energy as a tool to accelerate decarbonization makes perfect sense in bloodless computer models. Noted economist Jock Finlayson agrees and adds, however, in the real world, it does not as a theory, survive contact with the harsh financial realities it imposes on most people. I invited Jock Finlayson to join me for a conversation that matters about the cost of implementing policies that fail to meet their objectives and the hardship they incur. Jock, let's start by defining what energy poverty really is, and is it something that is real in Canada to the point where we should be really paying attention to it. I haven't found a single sort of definition that's agreed by international research groups or you know scholars, so it, it, it's kind of an elastic concept. Typically it is um, in Europe, which is where the discussion has been much more common than it's been here until recently, it's typically defined as 10% or more of household spending after tax, sorry, 10% or more of after tax household income allocated to cover the direct cost of energy consumed. Sometimes that's limited to the household itself, heating, cooking, cooling. Uh, we shouldn't forget the amount of power used for air conditioning. It's, it's, it's an important component in a, in a lot of countries. Uh, a broader definition would capture transportation energy, so the energy people use to, to commute, uh, you know, to move around. And then there's the notion of indirect uh, or sort of embedded energy costs that we can talk about a bit later that is not included uh, in most definitions of energy poverty. So, you know, 10% of after-tax income allocated for direct energy expenditures would probably be enough, I think, to start invoking the term energy poverty. And in Canada, uh, until recently anyway, Canadians were spending less, on average, less than 5%. Uh, of their after-tax incomes on direct energy consumption. It's been going up, uh, but historically we've been in that range, uh, similar to the U.S. So we, we have relatively cheap energy here in North America by the standards of the U.S. or, or Europe or Japan. That's changing. But. Yeah, yeah, well, I can understand in Europe, uh, other than some of the northern countries uh, that are producing uh, energy through oil, um, most of their energy or fossil fuel, carbon-based energy comes through importation, whereas we have an abundant supply here in North America. So what's been happening in Canada that we're now starting to see that equation change where it's gone from you know, about 5% of annual household uh, after-tax spending to now creeping to 10% and higher in some regions? Yeah. Well, I think it, I mean, there's a general rise in inflation, which is, which is sort of infected energy markets uh, over the last couple of years. 
But more importantly, governments are seeking to engineer decarbonization, uh, not just here, but in, in a lot of other countries. And this is being done because of concerns about climate change. There's multiple tools being brought to, to the battle or weapons being brought to the battle, including direct taxation of fossil fuel energy production and consumption, as well as a whole slew of new regulatory measures that are trying to drive energy efficiency and accelerate the substitution of non-carbon forms of energy for fossil fuel energy. So it's, it's not just pricing, it's all these other tools as well. And that's a big push here, it's a big push in Europe. Um, it's even a, a modest push in the United States, although they have no carbon pricing down there, which is a, you know, we're, we're committed to aggressive carbon pricing at the moment in Canada. The Americans have none at the national level. One wonders how that's you know, gonna play out over the next five or 10 years. But a lot of governments are doing it. Ultimately, if you want people to consume less of something, uh, you either raise the price of it, which includes the taxes that are embedded in the, in the price we see, uh, or you bring forward regulatory measures that force kind of behavior change. Both are controversial. Uh, both deliver costs as well as benefits. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. In Canada, no matter what we think, we live in a northern climate. And the quality of life that we have enjoyed uh, has beca been because we've had access to affordable uh, and easy to use energy sources. Are we going to be able to offer alternatives that are going to address the affordability issue but still give people the quality of life that they've come to expect? I think in the long run, yes. Um, I think advances in technology, the falling cost of renewable power, uh, potentially even things like fusion, hydrogen uh, forms of energy. I mean, there's enormous amounts of innovation happening uh, in the energy system, not just here, but I mean, really the US, China, Germany are all throwing enormous amounts of money at this. There's tremendous business opportunities in it. So I've got a lot of faith in kind of human ingenuity and the capacity to innovate our way through, through our reliance on a fossil fuel-based energy system today to something that's going to be quite different, you know, by 2050 or maybe by the end of the century. The problem is setting political timescales, politically manufactured timescales, and we've done a lot of that in Canada, to oversee this process doesn't work, uh, in my view. And this is where we're getting into the conflict that is the reason for this conversation and program, which is the politicization of energy and energy costs as seen by voters and consumers. Um, and it's, we're, we're seeing quite a bit of backtracking uh, from political leaders, not just here, but the Prime Minister of the UK, yes, he um, has. He's, who uh, yeah. was part of a government that actually committed very aggressively to climate targets under, under under the previous prime minister, or they've had so many yeah. in Britain, but going all earlier the way back conservative to David Cameron, prime ministers, yeah. um, and there appeared to be a pretty robust consensus, including in the Conservative Party in the UK, on being a leader uh, on decarbonization. He has now called a halt uh, to that yeah. and is really uh, rapidly backtracking now. Whether that works for him politically, I can't I can't say, but it's a sign of the times. And uh, I watch the U.S. closely because. Um, the current federal government in Ottawa likes to talk up collaboration between Canada and the United States on clean energy. 
And that's fine when there is some collaboration, but there's also a huge difference. And that is this. In Canada, we've decided to raise energy prices using carbon levies in particular, which you know, are quite transparent to people and is now triggering a backlash. In America, they've rejected that approach. There's almost no support uh, among US political leaders for the kind of carbon pricing system we have here, for example, in British Columbia. Um, so we're not gonna see, in my view, carbon pricing enter the US policy toolkit in this decade, which I think has some big challenges, creates some big challenges for Canada. If we're committed to one pathway and they're on a different one, um, people are gonna really notice the cross-border difference in energy prices, number one. And number two, businesses that depend on energy to produce whatever they're producing will be potentially put at a big disadvantage if they're located in Canada versus the United States if energy is going to be much less expensive down there. And it already is today. Well, then that speaks to your point about how this cost is now baked into absolutely every aspect of Canadian life, whether it's consuming products or producing them and trying to be competitive on, uh, you know, on a global, in a global market. Um, and so it, these are considerations that have to be thought through. Yeah, I think it's v w useful to think of energy in a more expansive kind of way. So yes, all the people watching this program are consuming energy to heat their homes, provide air conditioning, turn the power on. If they have a vehicle, they're consuming energy, unless it's an electric vehicle, but even then they're even consuming electricity, yeah. but they're not consuming fossil fuels. But we, we, we directly consume uh, energy, um, and if you think of the four big buckets of consumer spending on goods and services in Canada, number one is shelter, number two is food, number three is transportation, and number four is household operations. And, and number three and number four, transportation and the cost of running a household, there are big energy pieces in both of those. Um, but that's the direct energy cost. As you point out, every product uh, that we use in our day-to-day -day lives, whether it's consumer electronics, electric cars, computers, uh, food, uh, any kind of tangible good that you can touch, is produced using energy. Whether it's produced here or whether we're importing it, it's, it's using energy. More energy is also consumed to transport it from wherever it's being produced and processed to the point of consumption. So we, we, we are a very energy-dependent uh, economy and society, and we're not alone uh, in that. All advanced country, uh, industrial countries are. And, and it, we just assume you know, that the energy will be available and it won't be too expensive, but the equation is starting, is starting to shift. You know, the Canadian scholar Vaclav Schmiel, mm -hmm. in his magisterial book called How the World Really Works, has a whole chapter on the food system and its relationship to fossil fuel energy. And he documents the tremendous amount of energy that's used to grow crops, raise livestock, process food products, and then transport them to the point where they're consumption, where they're eventually consumed. And there's so much energy in food that he says that when you're eating food, you're basically eating fossil fuels. Um, so imagine trying to shift away from that to a world where we're still producing food, lots of it for a growing population, but somehow we're not relying on fossil fuels. It can happen, and I think it will happen eventually, but again, not on politically manufactured timescales, which is, I think, the real mess we're in in Canada, are these extraordinarily ambitious greenhouse gas and carbon reduction goals that our governments are setting um, with no viable, credible plan to get there. 
uh, and a failure, I think, to think through the economic ramifications of trying to do it on a political timescale rather than a timescale dictated by engineering and finance and physics and things that kind of ultimately determine what human beings are capable of. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So I just recently, to your point here, I uh, recently came across uh, some information saying to grow cucumbers in a greenhouse in Alberta, and I've been in some of these greenhouses where they're doing that, they of course have to burn uh, natural gas to ensure that they have enough CO2 to grow the plant. Right. But they're paying a carbon tax on that CO2, even though the carbon is being used to grow the plant. It becomes the essential building block. To the point where now I understand well, you can grow the cucumber there in Alberta, but the cost of it, when you add in all of this regulatory environment that we have, makes that cucumber more expensive than the one that got trucked up from Mexico. Yeah. So how do we then start to make sense of uh, coming up with policies that allow us to feed ourselves, uh, but also work towards meeting what we have collectively agreed is our climate objective? Well, it's a great question and I think an enormous political headache because uh, each jurisdiction kind of acting on its own, and, and we're certainly seeing this in BC today, um, uh, it, you know, we may succeed in actually reducing our own emissions, although I'm skeptical that the targets set by the government will be met, leave that aside. But if what we end up doing is displacing the production of certain items out of our jurisdiction to other jurisdictions, we run the risk that there'll actually be more carbon emissions compared to what would be uh, generated if we produce this stuff domestically. And um, uh, it, it the only way around that is international collaboration and the development of what the Yale economist and my former professor, William Nordhaus, calls a climate club. Mm -hmm. So he argues that because no individual country, even America, uh, you know, can do this on its own without seeing a lot of carbon leakage is the term that's typically used. The affluent, the 20 most affluent kind of economies in the world that are responsible for a lot of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and historically are responsible for a large majority uh, of, uh, of historical emissions need to come together and reach some kind of a treaty or an agreement where they will act in concert um, to get at this problem of carbon leakage. And what that would include is if you're importing stuff from jurisdictions that don't have robust climate policies, you put a big tariff on it, mm -hmm. kind of a carbon tariff. So that could work, I think, in, in, yeah. in theory. Um, it's extremely difficult to get there, but uh, I think in the long run, unless we want to quit producing stuff and import a lot more, which isn't sustainable, frankly, including with food, we're going to have to find a way to, to do that. And, and you know, the, the, the global diplomacy on this will be led by the big, the big guys, not mm -hmm. by us. It's going to be the EU, America, China, which is by far the biggest emitter of emissions of greenhouse gases, and then Japan, probably those four, and the small fry like ourselves will sort of come come on, uh, you know, come on in behind. But that's where we have to go, I think. To, if, if the world is going to be serious about getting emissions down quickly, we that has to be one of the of, of the systems that we use.
So we run into the situation, uh, Pil Roger Pilkey Jr.'s iron uh, law about policy, climate policy running into the pushback from voters' wallets. And we see the Prime Minister now make concessions in some provinces. This now starts to then put an enormous number of questions and requests for similar uh, carve-outs in different places across the country, which means that we have an uneven and an uncertain legislative environment. And if we want entrepreneurs and the capital markets to step up and, and help us address this issue of climate, the only way that they're going to be able to do that is if they know that they're operating in a sustainable legislative environment. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about sustainability, but for, uh, you know, for entrepreneurs and those people who are going to change the world, they say, I'm willing to step into it, but you have to demonstrate you're not going to keep changing the rules on me after I start to invest in that. And it looked to me like Canada was moving down a consistent policy uh, you know, highway. Mm -hmm. uh, and now suddenly there are changes and things are uncertain. What does that then do to the investment community that we need to rely on if we want them to come up with innovative solutions that allow us to address some of our, our climate and energy issues? Well, you know, we don't live in a technocratic system where a group of pointy heads get in a room and decide this is the operating framework for all time. I mean, these things are contested in the political arena, and that's exactly what we're, <laughs> we're witnessing in real time in Canada. Um, by the way, on, on this level playing field I, argument, I do have to, to note that the, the Trudeau government has legislated a minimum national backstop carbon price that's currently $65 per ton of CO2 equivalent emissions. Um, and that's what we're paying in BC. We have our own tax mm -hmm. here, so we're, we're actually not Part of the national program. We're not or, directly yeah. part of it, but if we were to get rid of it, we would be, the, the national regime would apply here. Um, but the problem is it's actually not, the, the, the maritime provinces until recently were partly exempted from that. And Quebec has a different regime. They use a, what we call a cap and trade uh, system uh, tied in with California. So they actually pay a lower effective carbon price than we do here in BC, which, you know, hmm. I'm surprised more, more people don't make a bit of noise about that. So it's very messy. Even, even in Canada, where we have this sort of theoretical single national carbon pricing framework in place, which the Supreme Court of Canada has upheld. It said it's, it's within federal jurisdiction. Um, but what does it mean to move <clears throat> from an energy system that we have today, where 80% of all primary energy demand is in Canada is being met with fossil fuels today, still 80. Not electricity. electricity Roughly 80% of it's coming from non-carbon sources, but electricity is only one-fifth or a little bit more than one-fifth of the total energy our, our economy consumes. So we, we want to shift from that to one that's a lot less carbon intensive. That means you're not only going to accelerate technology development and take up, you're going to turn over the capital stock of the entire economy. The, the buildings, the factories, the linear infrastructure, the transportation fleet, everything you're going to turn over to get from the current constellation of carbon-intensive systems to a much less carbon-intensive system. Mm -hmm. What does that require? It requires monumental amounts of capital investment over a sustained period of time in which people are going to have confidence to deploy the capital. The point you're raising, I think, is, is profound. If we have 
a lot of political uncertainty and debate and the potential for big policy shifts, which are kind of inherent in a democracy, by the way, um, the capital won't be there um, because it just is, there's too much uncertainty. And you could end up with, people talk about stranded assets in the oil and gas industry. We could end up with stranded green assets, you know, yeah. because of future policy chain, uh, changes that we can't kind of predict today. So in an ideal world, we would have a consensus, and not only in Canada, but among our key developed economy trading partners, that this is the path we want to go on. This is the carbon pricing regime we're going to put in place and stick with. And here's how we're going to collaborate to drive, you know, accelerated development of new energy efficiency technologies and do it collaboratively. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Well, and here's the realistic timeline. Yes. Because yeah. I think that by trying to force it, we're driving up the cost of energy, whereas if we are realistic about it, and I'm reminded of the fact that when uh, the primary source of transportation shifted from the horse to the automobile, it took about 50 years. Yeah, generations. Um, yeah. yeah. And, we, and so, we so let's be realistic about it. Yeah, we can do better than that. But it's, yeah. the, again, the, you know, so, so, so Canada, we've got uh, legislation in place that says we're going to reduce emissions by 40 to 45% from 2005 levels by 2030, which is less than seven years now from now. In BC, we have similar legislation that says we're going to cut emissions by 40% from 2007 levels by 2030. Both jurisdictions, Canada and BC, have achieved relatively little so far in terms of actual quantitative emission reductions. Although the, 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 the energy efficiencies increase, carbon intensities decrease, but the total economy has grown, the population has grown very rapidly. So emissions have come down very, very slowly. How are we going to achieve 90% of the stipulated emissions reduction that governments have committed to when there's only seven years left? We can't. We're, we're not going to achieve it. Um, and it's an unrealistic timeline. The 2050 net zero timeline, in my view, on the other hand, is more realistic mm -hmm. because there's more time to turn over the capital stock more time for technology to develop and get taken up and deployed, more innovation that will occur, more time for carbon pricing to kind of do its work um, on a time scale that I think is much more realistic rather than what we're doing right now, which I would say is, is it's, a polit it's political theater uh, to some extent, but it has real world consequences. Well, and then, the, well, the real world consequences are what it's gonna do to the economy what does it do to per capita GDP? What does it do to uh, the individual, uh, you know, household's ability to acquire the energy that they require to have a comfortable life in Canada? It's going to be a very interesting uh, next couple of years to see how this impacts. All um, very intensely political questions. Yeah. And I think I feel I have some sympathy for the policymakers uh, in all political parties to be candid. Most of them want to move forward with decarbonization. They believe it's, it's mm -hmm. important, and I actually agree with that. Um, they're looking for ways to do it that doesn't result in political suicide and, and, and stir up kind of hornet's nests of opposition. They are worried about affordability, and to be fair, the BC government, for example, tries to offset the cost of our escalating carbon price with income transfers that go to low and moderate income households, which, mm -hmm. which, which help. You know, yeah. quite a bit to mitigate that. 
They don't do much for business, but they they do some. They they provide some offsets for uh, for, for household you know tied to income, which is is good. Um, but at the end of the day, this is such a big transformation that that, that many people are aspiring to over a relatively compressed time period, that there's no way to engineer it without a lot of disruption. And that's going to include major changes in the relative prices of goods and services. Um, and people, when people start to see that, it, it as, as Professor Pilkey has written about extensively, it triggers a political. You know, in America, and, and he's, he's at the University of Colorado, so mm-hmm. he's kind of steeped in American energy policy and politics. It's mind-boggling but true that the national, the federal government's excise fuel tax on fuel that people use, you know, fuel their vehicles with, is set at the same rate today, the same level today as it was 40 years ago. So they haven't raised it, um, and Congress won't won't agree to raise it because of the very thing we're talking about here on this program. Now that's America, not Canada. I think Canadians have more tolerance for government engineered, you know, kind of tax and cost increases. Maybe we're more worried about climate change. We're more prepared to, you know, uh, absorb some blows to try and achieve lower emissions. I think, I think the Canadian equation is a bit different than the U.S. But still, if America was serious <laughs> about its own climate change commitments, one would think the cost of fuel would have been pushed quite a bit higher than mm-hmm. it is today, and their political system hasn't produced that outcome. That tells us something. Very interesting times. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening, and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audubon Brown, BD Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.